this morning, I'm excited just to continue this series that we began, um, I guess, three weeks ago already. This is our fourth week, um, and the message, or the series is entitled, A People on Mission, and I'm just going to, am I all right here, Gabe, just standing right where I'm at? Gabe, am I good? Okay, good. Thank you. I, I appreciate that. I'm always leery of getting feedback and whatnot. I want to be able to make sure not to obstruct your view this morning, but we began a series about three weeks ago entitled, A People on Mission, and I'll just pause here and encourage you, if you haven't had the opportunity to be with us each of the last three weeks, uh, check out our website, dwellchurch.la, and you can go to our teachings page, which is where our podcasts sit, or you can subscribe as well through I think, iTunes, Podbean, a myriad of ways as well, whatever your favorite listening app is. But um, do your best to, to kind of catch up if you haven't had the opportunity to do so. Over the last three weeks, we've had the opportunity to share uh, what God has placed in our hearts as the newer leaders of Dwell Church. Um, and for those of you that have been around Dwell Church for a while, you'll notice that a lot of what we're sharing is really in alignment with who Dwell Church is. And I think that really is indicative of God's leading and directing and guiding Kylie and I to partner with the community that was already in existence here. Because a lot of the values and a lot of the mission and the heartbeat of who Dwell Church is and has been um, really... Um, marries well or partners well with who God has called us to be. Uh, now, this morning, we're going to add a little twist to that because uh, one of the deep passions that Kylie and I both have um, um, that God has um, placed in our hearts prior to us even uh, getting into a relationship together was this deep desire to learn and to grow and to discover what it meant to be a disciple of Jesus Christ and what is our responsibility for sharing that with other people. Uh, oftentimes that's phrased within the, the term discipleship or disciple making. Um, and we're going to kind of explore that idea in this morning's message. Um, we're going to examine a very foundational teaching of Jesus. Over the last couple weeks, we've been looking at what's often referred to as the great commandment, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. And this morning, we're going to look at an equally foundational teaching of Jesus that's referred to as the Great Commission. Uh, and it's found in Matthew chapter 28. So if you have your Bibles or Bible apps, you can grab them and turn there. I'm going to be reading this morning from the New Living Translation. Uh, I'm not sure to what extent you may or may not be familiar with this translation, but I love it. Uh, and if you don't have your Bibles or Bible apps, I'll have on the screen up, oh, Gabe and Casey are way ahead of me today. Thank you, guys. We'll have it on the screen for you as well to follow along. But I love the New Living Translation because it creates um, a different or newer perspective for hearing God's Word. You get so used to reading the Scriptures in one particular version, and then you, you listen to a different version, and it just kind of adds a little bit more to that. So I really enjoyed how the New Living phrased it. And so why don't we just read this, um, and I'll read it. You can kind of follow along, either in your Bible app or um, on the screen. Uh, but it begins, uh, and I think I've got this. If it, if it doesn't follow exactly as I said, just close your eyes and listen to me, because what I'm reading is accurate. Okay, good. That, that fell. Good. All right. Jesus came and told his disciples, I have been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I have given you. And be sure of this, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. <clears throat> I love going on vacation. I don't know about you, but it's just... Um, I used to not be really good at vacation, to be honest with you. I was a little bit of a workaholic, and I would take little days here and there uh, just to kind of get some rest. But uh, when meeting Kylie, she really has helped me understand the value of rest 
and uh, Sabbath, Topher, some of the things that we've talked about a, a lot. Um, and also just vacation, truly just getting away from your own environment and getting away. But there's this one, dare I say, habit, ritual, tradition within my uh, personal experience that I have prior to going on vacation. It's called anxiety. I don't know if you have it, uh, but I, I have it. I, I'm here. Uh, my name is Josh, and I suffer from anxiety. Now, not clinical anxiety, but I have these little triggers in my life that create an anxious attitude or spirit in me. Um, and I, and I'm, I was trying to figure it out as I was, I was thinking about today's message to talk about this, this part of our message, is I, I realized I picked it up or I learned it from my dad. Uh, just recently, Kylie and I, when we first moved back, for me, back to California, when we moved to California, the place we were moving into wasn't ready, so we had to spend a week at my parents' house. And if you've ever had to spend a week at your parents' house, you know anxiety just kind of comes uh, automatically there. Uh, but So we spent a week, and they live in Marietta, so not too far, about 100 miles away. Um, but I saw myself so much in my father. I saw where all this anxiety had started in the way that he responds to all these outside pressures. And I realized that, and I flashed back as I was thinking about today's message, I flashed back to family vacations as a kid. And all the anxiety, now I look back and see it as anxiety. I just thought my dad was angry, but it was really anxiety that was festering in him and rolling over. Some of you have met my dad, well, and as you get to know him a little bit more, we'll, we'll, we'll see this even more in his life. But... Um, Anxiety has a way of creeping up in all of our lives, and it's, um, I don't know about you, but a lot of anxiety in my life comes when I don't go through my rituals or my routines that kind of keep things sane for me or where I feel like I'm in control. And that's really what it comes down to is like I feel like I'm in control. And one of the things that I have to do before vacation is the way that I pack. I don't know about you, but I have to basically empty my closet. Lay it all out on the bed. And like Kylie's rolling her eyes right now. You can just see. And, I, and I, she just bears with me as I do this. And I have to look at everything. And it's really cool because I look at it as an opportunity not only to pack for my vacation, but a way to reorganize and kind of clean up my closet. It's probably the only time I do it, but I take advantage of that opportunity. And, and I just lay it out. And there's a stacks of socks. And there's stacks of T-shirts. And there's stacks of jeans and slacks and everything else. And then I have to go, OK, now what do I want to take with me? And I always, inevitably, no matter what, overpack. It's just kind of who I am because I worry about, well, what if I want to wear this? Or what if it does get a little chilly? Or what if I need a matching shirt for these shorts, but I also want to wear them with these pants? And then what about the shoes? So I, I start trying to think through all these things. But there's one thing that, that we always, no matter if I, if I do that or not, there's one thing that we do uh, before our trip. And as we print out the letter that we leave for our house sitter slash dog sitter. Uh, and, and I say this, it's not like just this little jot down note, but it's an extensive, already, it's already printed out, I looked it up actually, uh, it's saved on my computer. It's a letter that we write to our house sitter because I want to make sure that everything, and Kylie wants to make sure that everything is taken care of because you're entrusting your valuables, your home, and we also have a 70 pound dog that we're now entrusting to this person. We want to make sure that everything is taken care of. And you know that before you leave on a trip, there are certain things that need to be done and certain things that need to be communicated. And these instructions on this letter are very important. It's like the last thing we do. We print it out. We leave it um, on it. We would leave it uh, back in Kentucky. We would leave it on our, our island there with a credit card just in case something happened. These are our last words, right? Um, and so in our passage this morning, we're looking at some of Jesus' last instructions to his disciples, to his followers. And just as though you might leave, whether it's on a long trip, 
Or maybe you're leaving this world. I don't know, and I hope not. But you might leave your last will and testament. No, I mean your last, your last instructions to somebody that's caring for something that's deeply valuable to you. Maybe you're just leaving for the night on a date night, and you've got instructions for your babysitter or your dog sitter or your house sitter on vacation. But you leave these instructions because they're most important to know. In worst case scenario, this is what you need to do. And so Jesus does the same thing, and even though he's not leaving a worst-case scenario, he's leaving his last and some of his most valuable instructions to his, his earthly followers. And it begins with this, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, and teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I've given you. So what is Jesus actually instructing us to do? Like, what is he really asking of us here? And what does that mean right now, right? That was interesting back then. Jesus lived in a culture of disciples and rabbis and teachers. But what does that mean today for us in 2020, where uh, the only rabbis we know are the Jewish guys that live in the Jewish neighborhood, and they don't really have disciples. They just have people that attend their congregations. What exactly does that mean for us today? A church community living in 2020 in Santa Monica, so far removed from Jerusalem, Galilee, and ancient Israel. Well, if we go back and we, and we look at this command, let's, I want us to look at this understanding really from that first century Jewish perspective. And we have to remember this. Sometimes it's easy to forget, but Jesus wasn't a Christian. He was actually a Jew. And he was speaking to other Jewish people about a very Jewish concept. Those words of go and make a disciples of all nations and teaching them and all those things and baptizing them had a very specific meaning and embodied a well-known paradigm for this first century Jewish listener that might hear this. And they understood these things from their perspective. Jesus didn't invent these concepts of disciple-making or discipleship. He didn't even invent the concept of baptizing. Uh, both of them are very rooted in first century Judaism and even prior to that. Every rabbi in Jesus' day, he wasn't the only rabbi of his day, but every rabbi of Jesus' day had disciples. It was very common. It was a well-practiced um, um, thing amongst the religious in, in the Jewish community. Um, and these disciples, oftentimes referred to as students, would often seek out their own rabbi uh, and who they wished to follow. So there might be a well-known rabbi in their community, and they would hope, and they would pray, and they would, they would uh, maybe just hope beyond all hope that this rabbi would accept them as one of uh, his students or disciples. And actually, this happened to Jesus. You can see it in Mark 5 and in Luke 9, where people approach Jesus inquiring if they might be able to follow after him. Now, there are a few exceptional rabbis who were very famous for seeking out their own students. So if a student wanted to study with a rabbi, he would ask if he might follow this particular rabbi. And the rabbi would consider the student's potential to be, to be like him. And that was one of the things that rabbis would look for within their disciples. Does this person, and, and now we're, let's go back, first century Judaism, so really it's going to be male-dominated. Women were not allowed to be rabbis. I'm sorry, ladies. I, I'm just kind of speaking the truth here. Now, today, I'm, I'm grateful that Jesus broke that barrier and actually invited women to follow him and invited them to be his disciples and disciple-makers. But in this context, in most understandings of the Jewish people, it's like the rabbi would go out and pursue these young men, that, or they might approach him and ask him to be his the, uh, his disciples, and, and he would examine them and look at them. Does this person essentially have the intellect, the aptitude, the charisma to learn everything that I have to offer them, but also to go and do the same? Does this person have the potential to become like me 
And then he would determine whether they have the commitment that was necessary to the life of being a disciple. And it is likely that most students that approach their rabbis uh, in hopes of becoming a disciple would be turned away. Some of them, of course, were invited to follow their rabbi, and this was in indicated uh, that the rabbi, this indicated the rabbi firmly believed that this person not only had the potential to be his disciple, but also had the ability and the commitment to be like him and essentially one day become a rabbi themselves. And it would be a remarkable affirmation of the confidence that this teacher or this rabbi had in the student. It was something that people would wear with honor, that so-and-so, especially a well-known rabbi, might select them to be one of his disciples. And the decision to follow a rabbi as a disciple meant a total commitment in this first century Jewish context, that this disciple was committing their lives to learning under their rabbi. Now, Jesus had the same expectation among his first century followers as well. In Luke chapter 9, uh, 23 and 24, and I think we have this uh, slide as well, do we, Casey? Thank you, sir. Um, then he said to the crowd, this is Jesus speaking, if any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way, take up your cross daily, and follow me. If you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it, but if you give up your life for my sake, you will save it. Now, we could spend all day kind of examining and tearing this apart and kind of digging into what uh, some of the deeper truths of this particular passage mean, but in essence, Jesus was speaking did we turn that light on? We did. Wow. And let there be light. Jesus was speaking to the demand that he was uh, and the expectations that he was placing upon his disciples and his followers. That it wasn't just a lighthearted commitment that I'm asking you to take on your life. This is it wasn't just a feel good thing or just kind of a special honor or anything. But I'm asking you to this deep level of commitment in your following of me. So since a disciple was totally devoted to becoming like their rabbi he would have spent his entire time listening to and observing the life of their rabbi to know how to understand the scriptures and how to put it into practice. And this is really important for us to grasp. Following a rabbi wasn't just learning a lot of head knowledge or a lot of theology, we might say. It wasn't just downloading the right theology or the right framework of what it means to be a follower of God. Because each rabbi, the reason they had their own disciples because they had their own interpretation or twist on the teachings in the Torah, the first five books of the, what we could say is the Old Testament. So each rabbi would have their own twist on how that was lived out. And so um, that's how um, this potential disciples would be drawn to these particular rabbis. They really connected with what this rabbi was teaching. And so uh, to follow that rabbi meant you were going to be infused with their teaching, with their, their way. But it was just more than just the teaching, but it was the modeling that the rabbi would show them how to now live out these teachings. So within first century Judaism and, 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 and following in, in, this, uh, in the same step, Jesus as well doesn't just give people a new framework of what it means to live a life that honors God or that's a part of God's kingdom. He actually starts to live out these new transformative teachings in front of his disciples and in front of the crowds. And these are some of the things, not just his teachings, but the way in which he lived that upset the established religious leaders of his day. Yet people were drawn to Jesus in this new way of not only in this new teaching, but not just the teaching, but the new way of living in this kingdom of God that he constantly talked about. And um, what's really interesting is that a rabbi would not only instruct his disciples, but he would model it for them. Matthew 24 uh, through 25, and I think we've got, man, this guy is on it today. 
Listen, students, listen to what Jesus says in, in Matthew 10, 24 through 25. Students are not greater than their teacher, and slaves are not greater than their masters. Students are to be like their teacher, and slaves are to be like their master. Notice that Jesus doesn't say here that students should know everything that their master says, or that students um, um, should um, uh, be able to communicate in the way that their, their uh, teachers do. In essence, he was saying it's not just about the information download into our intellect, into our, into our mind, but following the pathway of the kingdom of God moves beyond just an intellectual understanding, but it transforms the way in which we live. Now, as followers of Jesus, we understand that, although there's some within the church that will solely focus on having a right doctrine, and they're so focused on having a right doctrine or a right teaching and a right theology that they totally um, will exclude people that are living out the teachings of Jesus, yet they're so focused on what somebody believes. So this component to following after Jesus and being a disciple of his involves both. So we don't just have to, you know, it's not just living out these things, but it's understanding what Jesus is teaching us, having a right framework or pursuit of a right framework of who God is, but also letting that impact the way that we live our lives. It really goes back to the heart of what we've been talking about for the last three weeks, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. Who cares if you have a right understanding about God if you're treating the person that is next to you like crap? If you aren't loving them, if you aren't forgiving them, if you aren't extending the mercy and the kindness that God has extended to you towards them. So who cares if you believe in the Trinity, and who cares if you believe in G- if Jesus was born of a virgin? Like those are important and foundational doctrines to Orthodox Christianity, but the reality is if you have that framework, and you believe that, and you affirm that, and you've been baptized, all these great things, yet you don't love your neighbor as you love yourself, you're really throwing it all away. And this is the beautiful thing about Jesus. He doesn't just instruct us in these ways. He actually models this way where he goes out of his way to touch people that are the outcasts and the fringe of their society. Those that would no longer be welcomed into their community with open arms, whether they be because of their sin or because of an illness and a disease like leprosy. All these other reasons that the religious leaders would use to exclude people from the worship and the communion with God and the community as a whole, Jesus would go out of his way to reach out to these people because he understood that God's heart was for these people, that it isn't just having a right intellect and understanding about God, right? The only person that has ever existed in the history of the world that has a right understanding about God is Jesus Christ. The rest of us are all struggling, all right? We have little pieces that we hold on to. You know, the scriptures teach us, revelation of the Holy Spirit helps us to grasp that, but we're really struggling. That's why there's so many different denominations and so many different beliefs within Christianity. It's because everybody's got one little thing that they hold on to, and it becomes more important than what Christ has called us to do and to love our neighbors and love ourselves. Now look, there are reasons, there are denominations, we can go on to this all day long, but the reality is it's not just having a right mental picture of who God is or a right theology or a right doctrine, however you want to frame it. That is important, and it should be pursued. We should all become students of God and his word, but it moves beyond that to where, what are you doing? Is that information that you have moving beyond information? Is it moving to transformation? Is it helping you and I become more like Jesus? Because that's what Christ has called us to, right? To be his disciples means to follow in his footsteps. Yes, to boldly proclaim the truth, but to live out that truth even more boldly. It takes a lot of boldness in any culture, in any time, to live the way of Jesus. Because when we do it wholeheartedly and we do it with great commitment and with great conviction, what happens, and empowered by the Holy Spirit, what happens is we make enemies. 
right? Jesus walked in the pathway of God, was obedient to the Father, empowered by the Holy Spirit, and it led to his death. It made enemies because when we follow the pathway of the kingdom of God, it upsets the kingdoms of this world. The people that are in authority and in power are threatened by a life that follows the pathway of the kingdom of God. It upsets the structure that this world is so comfortable with. Yet Christ calls us to that life. And we all struggle to live it out, but by the power of God's spirit, we can live a kingdom honoring life like Christ Loving God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and truly loving our neighbors. And then, as Kylie mentioned last week, right, God's call to those that follow him is deeper in, in our understanding of what it is just to be our neighbor. Like in our culture, in our mindset, we think geographically who lives on my block. But Christ calls us, and when he calls us to love our neighbor as ourselves through the parable of the Good Samaritan, those that we might consider the outcasts or the religious and political enemies of our own cause. Are we loving them as an in the same way that we love ourselves. Becoming like your rabbi, or I will put it in terminology for us as people of faith to Christ, is becoming like Jesus means that we also will have to raise up disciples. So, right, like one of the calls of the rabbis was to identify people that had the potential to be like and to do like their rabbi. And when God calls you, and what's beautiful is we see in the scriptures, or I believe my understanding of the scriptures is that God's call is to all people, that all would repent and come into the kingdom of God. And when God calls people into his kingdom and he invites you to follow after him, to be his disciple, he's calling you and I into the same lifestyle and the same habit of being a disciple maker. And you may think, oh, I didn't sign up for this, man. I just wanted to take it out of hell. <laughs> The life that Christ calls us to is uh, sometimes summarized in a, in a bad way or reduced to come to church. If you're a really good Christian, you'll give some money and you'll volunteer and you show up more than um, on Christmas and Easter. That's, that's kind of what we reduce Christianity to. Or, or sometimes we reduce our, our Christian faith to I'm not Jewish, I'm not a Muslim. Uh, and I'm not an atheist because I believe in something bigger than me, so I, I must be a Christian. And so we reduce the Christian faith to that. But the, the, the faith of following Christ, the faith of following in the footsteps of Jesus, are a life that, that, he, that we talked about there in Luke 9, right? A life of self-denial, picking up your cross, denying yourself, and following then after Jesus. It's a life that means setting aside our desires when they come in conflict with the, the desires of God's kingdom. And the only way we know that is we stay in the word and in, and in prayer. I mean, that's how we know the heartbeat of God, right? So like the word of God, the scriptures, they lead us and guide us into truth. But the Holy Spirit is the one that empowers and enlightens us to live that out. He teaches us. He shows us how to live that out. And the other context or the other, the other actually I should say, component to that and living it out properly is really community. Not just like friends and leaning on people, and that's an important aspect of community, but the community of faith, our responsibility is to each other. We are our brothers and sisters keepers. God has called us to hold each other accountable. So we can wrestle with theology and we can wrestle with deep questions of what it means to follow Jesus, but we're called to do that within the context of being together so that we can hold each other accountable to like, hey, this may or may not 
be what Jesus says, but this is what I've been thinking, and we can talk about it, we can discuss it, and we can dig in together as what is God saying to us? Are we in alignment with what God has been teaching us as a, as a church, right? So we have to have an identity of us as a church more than just Dwell Church, realizing that Dwell Church is a manifestation or a part of the greater church, all those who call upon the name of Jesus. What we would say is the big C church, not the little C church. The little C church is Dwell Church, right? We're part of a greater, we're a local representation of the followers of Jesus, the disciples of Christ. But there's a big C church, and that is not bound by a denomination or a building or a time and a place. It's those that call upon the name of Jesus, that follow after him, those that are his disciples. And that's the greater history, and that's the greater culture, and that's the greater stream in which we live as followers of Jesus Christ. And so it's not just how does it impact my life here and now, but how does it impact the course of what God has been doing throughout history through his church? How is what I'm believing and living out aligned with that? So there's this call to be a disciple maker, to be somebody that essentially does what Jesus did. Now, this can be very challenging for a lot of people because in most church, local church contexts, though the disciple making responsibility is technically left to, quote unquote, the professionals, the pastors, and or ministry leaders. And there are some people that would even make a theological argument that that's what Jesus was doing here because they said, oh, well, that command there to go and make disciples of all nations was really just for the, uh, the apostles, not, not just the, the rest of the believers. It's really for the leadership. But if we look to the book of Acts, we can actually see that's not how the church lived this out. Um, and if you don't know anything about Acts, Acts is like the second part of Luke. So Luke tells us the story of Jesus, his life, his teachings, his ministry. And then Luke continues the story after Jesus ascends to be with the Father. And he tells the beginning stories of the church. And he tells this story not with any other agenda. And it's almost like this historical account because he's wanting to set things straight. But we see in Luke 8, there's something that happens, I'm sorry, Luke 8, in Acts 8, there's something that happens that shocks the church and it really rattles them. And, and that's when one of their leaders, this guy named Stephen, gets murdered. He gets stoned for his faith. They actually, the Jewish, uh, the rabbis and the teachers, they take stones and they kill him for what they consider heresy. Because this guy, Stephen, was teaching Jesus Christ and his resurrection. And so he gets stoned. And what happened is there rises up within Jerusalem, this is where it happens, all the Jewish uh, religious leaders start to persecute these followers of Jesus. So let me add this context here. The early church viewed themselves and the rabbis viewed the early church as just another wild sect of Judaism. So they didn't view them as like what we would say are Christians today. They just viewed them like within Judaism, there were all these little minor sects or branches. Um, there were the Pharisees and the Sadducees, which we, we know a lot about. Or if you've read anything about the scriptures, you, you know something about them. They were the two main sects within Judaism that, that Jesus battled and debated with. But there are these other minor ones like the Essenes and these others um, and the Zealots, which were more political. They all had their own agendas. So when it looked to what we would say are Christians or followers of Jesus, they viewed them as just another Jewish sect that was radicalized, but they were threatened by them because the power and the authority in which Jesus walked, now they were walking in. And so when Stephen starts prophesying and convicting them for their lives and, and calling them out for their crap, they kill him just the same way of Jesus, right? And so when that happens, then all of a sudden they, they're so threatened by the church, they start to persecute the church in Jerusalem. So most of them, most of them are scattered. They call it a diaspora, if you've ever heard of that before, but it's like the first diaspora or the spreading of the Jewish believers, because they were all Jews, throughout the known region. 
And what happens, it tells us in Acts chapter 1, starting in verse 1, verse 4. And I don't know if I do have it. Awesome. Thank you, Casey. Listen to this. Saul was one of these witnesses. Now, he's a witness to the murder of Stephen, all right? This great leader and elder in the church. And it says, and this is Saul who would one day become Paul and be the greatest evangelist the church has probably ever known. Certainly the greatest missionary the church has ever known. Saul was one of the witnesses to Stephen's death, and he agreed completely with the killing of Stephen. A great wave of persecution began that day, sweeping over the church in Jerusalem. So this is Jews persecuting other Jews for believing in Jesus. And all the believers except the apostles, so except for the 11, now they've added another one to replace Judas, so the 12, were scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. So essentially they're taken from Jerusalem, which is the political and religious hub of the church and Judaism, and they're spread throughout, at that point, the rest of the area in which Jews live. Judea is farther to the south, Samaria is farther to the north. And then verse 2 tells us, some devout men came and buried Stephen with great mourning, but Saul listen to this, was going everywhere to destroy the church. He went from house to house, dragging out both men and women to throw them into prison. Now listen to verse 4. This is the, the climax here. But the believers, remember the apostles are still there in Jerusalem, but the believers who were scattered preached the good news about Jesus wherever they went. It wasn't just the 11 or the 12 that went around the world, and they did. You know, some of the apostles went as far as India, and some believe even maybe even to what is today England. I mean, within the lifetime of those early apostles. But within 100 years, the gospel spread at least as far as China and to what is England. We know that. But it wasn't just these 12, the leaders, the apostles. It was the entire church that wherever they went, they shared the way of Jesus. Following Stephen's death in approximately uh, 35 AD, yes, the religious leaders and members of the Jewish church uh, in Jerusalem, they were persecuted and they, the rest were scattered. And it says there that they went right to Samaria and to the round to Judea. Eventually they would spread throughout kind of the Mediterranean region and everywhere they went, the church would rise up. There's actually a story in Acts where one of the apostles encounters church, uh, believers, and they, none of them had preached there yet. Like, none of the apostles had preached there yet. And so, like, they have an understanding of baptism, but uh, they're, they're, I think it's in 18, Acts 18. He's like, hey, we've heard of John's baptism, but what is this baptism of the Holy Spirit you're talking about? So, like, this other teaching that, that the church had early on. But, like, the whole idea was, like, the apostles had not even been to this place yet, and the gospel had gotten there. Because the church, the believers, had taken with great sincerity and great commitment the command of Jesus that he had given before he ascends to be with the Father. Like this command in Matthew 28, 18, this instruction that he gives to his church is post-resurrection. So like Jesus has come, he's lived, he's taught, he's done all the things that he's done, and then he dies, right? Three days later, he ascends, he's resurrected, and all of a sudden it blows the minds of even those that trusted him and knew him best. And he's walking around, it tells us, for a few more days and a few more weeks to instruct his apostles in these final important instructions on how to now live out this life. And the last thing he's telling them is, now go and make disciples of all nations. And it spreads. It spreads. So how are we supposed to live this out? How are we, as followers of Jesus Christ, supposed to live this out? Well, there's three components that I want to briefly touch on, and then um, I will ask Jackie to come forward. But there are three components to being a disciple maker. 
and they evolve, I believe it's up here, go, baptize, and teach. So as you look at the instructions that are found in, in Matthew 28, 18 through 20, Jesus, the, the command, the overarching thing that he asks of his followers is, number one, to go and make disciples. And these are the three ways in which we fulfill that commandment. So the first one is go. Now this, there's a lot of debate over this word go, which you think is so funny. It's such a small word. It's obvious what the word go means, isn't it, right? But there's debate within the church world of what this was uh, what the intention behind this was. And I think both of the main understandings behind this word are accurate and true. And so um, there are some, I'll just I'll start with this. There are some people that God uses this word go to, and there's an imperative upon their lives to actually physically leave where they're at and to go share Christ elsewhere, outside of their own context. We would call them missionaries today, where God has placed a special calling on some people to leave their own culture, their own environment, and to actually physically move someplace else in order to share Christ there. Um, now, in the original Greek, it can also the word can also be translated. It can be translated as go, which is one of the primary ways it's translated, but it can also be translated um, as, quote, as you go. So as you and I go about our daily lives, as you and I go wherever life and the Holy Spirit take us, as we go, we make disciples wherever we go. Does that make sense? Do you see that distinction there? We're good? Some heading nods would be good? Okay, okay. Affirm this guy. He's a little insecure this morning, all right? All right, so there's this idea of physically changing locations at the leading or the prompting or the calling of God to leave your location and to go. But there's this other idea that the vast majority of us would fall into is as we go. So as we go about living life in our daily jobs, lives, families, and communities, as we go, the calling is for us to be disciple makers, all right? So in order to be a disciple maker, we have to be, and, and that requires an intentionality, right? Because you know people that just coast through life there's a lot of people that coast through their faith. They, they affirm Jesus is the Lord. They go to church, they give, but it doesn't impact their daily life apart from an hour and a half on a Sunday morning. And so Christ's calling is, is like this faith and this call to make disciples for all of you isn't just about coming to church on Sunday morning, but it's, it's about you understanding that God has strategically placed you where you're at. The neighborhood in which you live, the job in which you are working, the community that God has put you in, he has strategically placed you there for a purpose and a reason. And not just to be a good person, and, because there's a lot of great people in this world, and there's nothing wrong. I, I want to encourage you, be great people. But there's a greater purpose and calling that God has called each and every one of us to, and that is to be disciple makers. Now, that doesn't mean you have to hold a Bible study at work during your lunch hour. The first thing it means is that you need to actually live your life out truly before people. That doesn't mean you're preaching, but what it means is like the convictions, the understanding that God has called you to, you live those out. The values, the integrity that he's called you to, the, the life of following Christ that he's called you to, you live it out in front of everybody. Let the consequences fall where they may. There's also this, um, this um, responsibility we have as people of faith to live lives that are sensitive to the voice of the Holy Spirit. So like God did not just leave us all on our own with a lot of great instructions that Jesus gave us, but he has given us himself, the person of the Holy Spirit, to lead us and to empower us into this life of following Jesus, doing what Jesus, teaching what Jesus taught, living what Jesus taught, and also living it out, like acting it out and doing the things that Jesus did right? Like the, the subcontext or the subtitle of this whole series, what happens when the people of, uh, of the church actually do the things that Jesus said, right? 
what happens when we start to live this out. So there's a Holy Spirit that empowers us and guides us to like be aware of like things that we wouldn't necessarily be aware of. But he will lead us to opportunities and people if we just ask him to, to share faith with. Uh, I'm going to share a really interesting story uh, really quickly. Uh, like so, um, because we have a 15-month-old, we get up really early. Not, not necessarily because we want to, but the only time that we're going to have um, to actually think as an adult and have a conversation with either each other or the Lord is the quiet of the early morning. So most mornings, Kylie and I are getting up between 5.45 or 6. It's not super, yeah, like I used to think that that was super early. You have kids, it's not so early anymore. Getting up at 2 o'clock in the morning to change a diaper, that's early. All right, but, but we get up early in the morning to spend some time in prayer and meditation and, and, and to read the word or devotional and, and kind of just spend that time alone with the Lord. And then sometimes we gather together and we pray together. Um, and so like I've created these little prayer lists um, on my phone. I've got this great app and I just kind of just jot down prayer lists of what I'm praying for. One of them is like uh, the people of dwell. So like I, I write everybody's name down and I just pray over you. But I've got these other prayer needs like, um, like what about dwell as a church community? What are the things that we need? And then I've got like personal needs, like issues with family or whatever, uh, and over our home and what I want to pray for. And then um, there's another one, because we, we don't live here in Santa Monica, we live in Jefferson Park. And so like I've got this little Jefferson Park prayer list and I write down all the things there. But one of the challenges to doing ministry on the west side but not living on the west side is it's hard to meet people on the west side when you live in Jefferson Park. So I've got this, this special prayer list. It's like, all right, about the west side of L.A. and Santa Monica. It's like, God, you got to give this church and the people of this church who are really the church itself influence and relationships with people on the west side. So I said, God, lead us, and this, I'm praying this over our family, lead us to relationships um, with people, uh, what we would call as people of peace. And actually, Kylie's going to share about this concept next Sunday, uh, uh, people of peace. It's a scriptural concept about people that God gives you favor with. I'm like, God, give us, give us connections with people of peace on the west side of L.A. All right. So Kylie's on Facebook, and she's looking for some little tiny little piece of furniture for our bathroom to get more cabinet space because we've got a big bathroom but very little cabinet space. And so she finds this thing on Facebook Marketplace. Yay, right, all right. And so we're, we um, decide to meet this young lady who's selling it in kind of like the mid-Wilshire, almost Beverly Hills-ish area. And it's the middle, not the middle of the day, middle of the morning. Um, and so we get in the car, we pack up the baby, it's great to get her out of the house, and so we drive over there, and we, we have this conversation with this young lady, and all of a sudden we find out that, like, she lives here on the west side, there's a lot of connections and, like, common things between us, like where her parents live and where my parents live, where she grew up, um, she's a California native as well, um, like, her sister is in occupational safety, and Kylie's brother and, and our, uh, and his wife are both in occupational safety and all these weird connections. And so we're like, we just invite her to church. It's like, and she's somebody that works in the entertainment industry. And I'm like, that's like a total connection to a lot of the people here in our church. And I was like, God did this. It's like, who, who, who would fathom that God would connect us to somebody? And like, we gave her our email address. We emailed her. It's like, God's connecting. Like, God's answer. So like, when you live a life of intentionality, you ask God, God, don't just go through the motions of your life and go through the motions of your faith. Like, it's so easy to do that because we're all busy. And we've got a lot of things to do. But the reality is, this is a day-by-day, moment-by-moment experience with the Lord. And if we live it with intentionality and with purpose, God will do miraculous things that connect you to somebody that lives on the West, who's like the ideal person that belongs in this church. Now, this person, not a faith, but she was very open to a conversation about God and about 
like when we told her we're both ministers here at the church, she's like, oh, it wasn't like this combative thing. It was like somebody that was really open to this conversation. She's like, well, I don't really go to church, but sometimes I go to the Greek Orthodox Church, my friend who invites me. And like she was just very open to a conversation. It doesn't mean that we had to lead that person in the sinner's prayer, right? I mean, what it, but it means is like God will direct your steps. He will orchestrate your life if you allow him to have greater purpose than just fulfilling the purposes of your job. And some of our jobs are valuable and important, and they have an eternal impact. But God has called his people to do more than that, to move beyond just where we get paid and to be people of eternal influence, not just people of influence by the world standards. And that happens when we live a life that's sensitive to the Holy Spirit, and we just go right? Go about your day. As you go and as you do the things that God has called you to do, he will provide opportunity for to lead somebody into a deeper relationship with Jesus. And that can happen before they ever confess Christ as Lord. You can start teaching. So like to be a discipler, all you have to do is as the Lord opens, uh, opens up the opportunities is you just need to share what you know about Jesus to other people. Think about what has God done in your life. Think back. We all, like, we may not have a ton of those moments, but we all have those moments that we can look back and say, that was undeniably God moving in my life, and I had no clue. Share that story. That story is the beginning of you discipling somebody else. That's it. Because what you're talking, nobody can argue theology over your life and your story. You're sharing an experience where, in our understanding, we would say, God has invaded my life and my circumstances, and he's changed things. And the hope that we offer people is that he can do the same for you. God doesn't love me any more than he loves you. It doesn't matter where people go to church or not go to church. They could be Buddhist, Buddhist, Buddhist atheists for, for all that matters. It doesn't matter. God loves and cares about them and desires to invade their lives as well. And he's going to do that through you and I. So as we go about our daily lives and as we go about living in the communities that God has placed us, in the jobs that he's put us in, in the contact with the people that we're in contact with, we go and we teach people all that we know about Christ. See, the other cool thing about this is it forces us to continue to grow in our relationship with the Lord. Because eventually, if you share everything you know about the Lord, you're going to run out of things and you've got to learn some more. So it really causes you. And it also causes you to look back and go, maybe it has been a long time since God has invaded my life. Is that God's fault or is that mine? When is the last time I've truly trusted God for the impossible in my life or in my family or in my job or in my career? When is the last time I've trusted him for these things? And so these are the moments that we have and the opportunities that we have. And the more that we allow God to invade our lives, I will argue with you, but I think this is true, that the overflow of that will lead to these opportunities and these circumstances. Because when God does something in your life, it's hard to keep it quiet. It's hard not to share it with somebody else because you realize the, the, the significance of the God of the universe invading my life and my circumstances in order to change things. And God wants to do it. This is why being a disciple causes us to create, because it's like it causes us to be compelled to tell others. We get excited about what God is doing in our lives. And so for some of us, it's been a very long time. And Jackie, you can come on up. For some of us, it's been a very long time since we've been excited about what God is doing in our lives. And I want to tell you this morning, it's not God's fault. God's desire, his heartbeat, his, his greatest uh, desire for your life is to be a greater part of it. And he wants you, see, he wants you, he wants you to trust him with those things that are most challenging, most difficult, and the impossible in your life. We have this tendency, especially as Americans, certainly the Western world is that way as, as a whole, but we have this tendency towards independence and self-reliance. Our culture values those things. But the kingdom of God calls us to live by the values of the kingdom, not 
the values of our culture. Like as believers, our culture should become more and more the kingdom culture, not our own nationality, ethnicity. Those are all valuable and good things. But as people of the kingdom, we recognize our first allegiance, our first home is the kingdom of God. This is why Jesus said, in order to love me, you've got to hate your mother, your father, your brother, your sister, and even yourself. What Jesus is saying is our commitment and our passion and our love for God should be so great that when you compare it to our love for everything else, it looks like hatred. This is why Jesus said, when you follow me, it will cause division in your home. It will cause division in your workplace. It will cause division in your neighborhood. Because what we're saying is we're, our allegiance, our loyalty is to nothing but Jesus Christ. Him first. And not just in words and in theology, but the way that we live our lives, that I'm committing to the pathway of Jesus. Him first. And it will cause people to be confused and misunderstand, but then there will be other people that God will put you in contact with that will be hungry, desperately and deeply hungry for what God is doing in your life. This is the call of the kingdom. This is the call to be a disciple maker. We can all do it. Don't let anybody tell you you can't. It's easy. Share what God is doing in your life. Share what God has done in your life. Believe God for doing something right now in your life that will be transformative. The next miracle. Believe him for that. And share with people what God is doing in your life. Let your eyes be open to see people in the manner in which God sees them. Ask the Lord to put you in contact with people that are just ready, right? Jesus said, the harvest fields are white. They're ready. They're ready. Pray so that the laborers would come in order to harvest. And there are people in your neighborhood, in your family, in your job place that are all ready for the kingdom of God. God has placed you strategically there. And again, I'm not telling you to get a bullhorn out and start preaching or to be an, an annoying Christian. What I'm telling you is to be a spirit-led, spirit-empowered follower of Jesus Christ and let the Lord open the doors and the opportunities will come for you to not point yourself out, but to point out Jesus, the hope that we all hold to, the strength that supports us through challenging, difficult times. This is the pathway of the kingdom of God. That's why when persecution came to the early church and they were scattered, the church grew in these places that they didn't want to go, right? Like these people didn't intentionally go as missionaries. They were scattered because of their circumstances. And some of us have been scattered by life circumstances. Maybe we haven't geographically left the locations of what we started, but we have been scattered because of life circumstances. And God has placed you where you are today. You've gone through those circumstances today in order to bring glory to his kingdom. Allow your circumstances to be turned around to bring glory to God's kingdom. To be a disciple maker, it's simple, it's easy. And it isn't for notoriety's sake, it isn't for the growth of this church, it's for the glory of God and the, and the growth of the big C church that people would come to know the hope that we have in Christ. Would you stand with me? I'm gonna pray and then just turn this over to Jackie. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your hope. We thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you for your spirit, which guides and empowers all of us as we lean into you. And I pray this week, Lord, as we take the steps that we take to live life, that we do it with great intentionality and sensitivity to the leading and the prompting of your Holy Spirit, that you would connect us to people this week that are in desperate need of hope. And I pray that relationships would start, that friendships would start. And out of that friendship, the overflow of what you are doing in our lives would draw these people to Jesus, your son. It's in his name that we pray.
1 Corinthians chapter 1, starting at verse 20, reads, Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what we preach to save those who believe. Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. I'm really encouraged, not just by these words, but by the ideas as we look back to the early church. They were outcasts, they were small, they were isolated. Yet somehow this small group of people transformed not just their neighbors and their community, but ultimately the world. And I believe that God's desire for us at Dwell Church is to have that impact here in this city. And it's so easy to look at the resources that we have in the natural world and our limited size and our limited budget and all these limited things. But there is something that is greater than those resources, and that is the spirit and the message which we contain. For it's the spirit of God himself and the message of the gospel which brings the change and the transformation to our communities. And so I want to uh, just encourage you in this, is that the Lord is with you. Where he's placed you, he's empowered you, he's equipped you. You have everything that you need. You have him. Lean into his experience. Lean into his strength. Lean into his wisdom. Some, some people may require miracles, right? There may, God may use you to bring about a miracle in the life of someone you know or in a circumstance that you're facing. Or God may use his wisdom through you to bring a transformation, but it is only found in Christ. That is the wisdom and that is the strength in which we lean upon, not our own. But as we do that, lives are changed. Communities are transformed. And Jesus is glorified. So I encourage you to go in that. Go in that strength and that power and that hope that is not in us. Because together we can do nothing. But with Christ we can do all things. God bless you. Go in his name. And we look forward to seeing you guys next Sunday.